Welcome to the Behind the Goals podcast, the podcast about fans, for fans and by fans. Please welcome your hosts, Andrew Jenkin and Alan Russell. Hello and welcome to Behind the Goals. Uh, this is a, another one-off of our Masterclass series and uh, this week we've been joined by Nick Igo, who's uh, one of our Club Development Scotland uh, consultants and also a Finance Director at Supporters Direct. Uh, terrific, terrific interview with Nick. Yeah, yeah, everything you ever want to know about football finances and an awful lot more. Um, but very accessible uh, and there's, I'm sure there'll be some really strong takeaways for everybody who's got an interest in football finances certainly was for me. Uh, a couple of ideas have come out of that uh, that I think we can uh, use and, and really make a difference in the way that we, we think about football finances for clubs at any size. Yeah, and uh, the underlying takeaway is if you've got any questions about club finance, then uh, come speak to Nick. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the guy with the answers. Absolutely. So we'll delve straight into it. Nick, thank you very much for joining us on the Supporters There at Scotland podcast. Uh, this week we're doing a masterclass about the kind of fundamentals of finance and, and budgeting and everything that a community sports club could need to know about money when it comes to money. Um, but first of all, it'd be really good to just get a bit of your background for the benefit of the listeners um, to find out what your um, experiences have been working in sport and finance. Okay, um, well, thanks for inviting me, Andrew. And yeah, I'm, I'm an accountant by training, a chartered accountant down in uh, England. And um, I worked in industry, I suppose, for about 25 years. 15 of those years were spent as finance director of West Ham United, which was... Great club. <laughs> a great <laughs> club. Uh, very rewarding, but uh, occasionally quite challenging, shall we say. Yeah, um, went through the... Through the whole mill of emotions with them. Well, and, and uh, I, I guess in a way it's character building as well because you had to deal with a fair few emergencies down the years. Some rewarding things, but uh, two relegations, one of which entailed a lot of um, financial adjustment. But I think it was uh, a very worthwhile exercise because the club sorted itself out, I, I thought, very well by reducing debt um, reducing the cost base and, and we bounced back this was in 2005-06 um, with a very good young side um, and did really well for it for a year or so um, sadly before we got taken over by an Icelandic group that um, caused immense financial problems which was a, a different set of challenges. Um, how, long, how long were you involved before the Icelandic group came in? Oh 10 years. Okay. 10 years okay. yeah and uh, there was all sorts of different issues at different times, but um, having been relegated and bounced back, as I say, we sorted the cost base out big time. We, we'd got good things, I think, like a high mix of performance-related pay for the players, as I say, good young players, a lot of sell-on value, and um, significantly reduced the debt while at the same time having a bigger stadium that allowed us to um, exploit the commercial potential of the club better. Um, the problem with the Icelanders was that the, uh, I mean, the whole Icelandic economic miracle, if you can call it that, with quotes around it, was based on bank debt. Mm. And they immediately racked up our debt hugely, which um, caused us problems once um, they got into difficulties themselves. And then from 2008 onwards we were firefighting trying to get the costs and the, the debt down because basically our owners were 
close to being bankrupt and eventually bankrupted and just couldn't fund the club at all. So, so that was immensely challenging, um, compounded by losing the legal action against Sheffield United, which uh, involved settlement costs of, of up to 30 million. Um, sponsor who didn't pay us um, and the owner going bust. It's so like a dream team, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so everything, I think it was September 08, everything went wrong in about 30 days and, and it was, uh, as I say, character building and interesting, but it, it posed problems. And, uh, and having a, an insolvent owner also meant that you're exposed to Premier League sanctions, which could have resulted in us being relegated and, and other sanctions. But we had to sort of um, negotiate a way out of that as well. So mm. always interesting, though. Always interesting. Yeah. But um, so in 2012, I decided I wanted to move on, do something a little bit less demanding. And um, I sort of gradually moved into the role at Supporters Direct um, through a guy called Tom Hall, who may be known to you. Mm. And... Um, have done a range of projects for them. The first one was out in Greece with Panathinaikos, which was very interesting. But um, although Supporters Direct, especially down in London, or in England, I should say, is is um, looking at helping trusts to, to acquire ownership of clubs, um, I, I've given advice on that, but I've also given advice in other areas, um, just financial advice um, to support our own clubs generally when, when they've asked for it. Um, one or two just ad hoc projects, uh, one with a trust at the moment who are looking at acquiring the freehold of the club's ground. So they would then become the club's landlord and that's been quite an interesting exercise. Um, and also advising one or two trusts where they just want to get a better understanding of the club's finances. And that's not... Um, getting access to confidential information, that's just really looking at what's in the public domain and trying to um, explain it in layman's terms to, to supporter groups so that they understand where the club is, the challenges it faces and, and the risks, I guess. So um, varied, but always interesting. Mm, which is very similar, actually, to a lot of the work that Alan's done with the SD Scotland Index, which looks at um, kind of performance yeah. of clubs. Yeah, I mean, we're more focused on um, making the ownership and engagement uh, sides of how clubs run more transparent, but but we're very interested in moving into some sort of financial measures that give people a very simple way of understanding the financial health of their club. Mm. Um, but I'm quickly realising as we as we embark on investigating what that might look like, that uh, there are there are as many different approaches. Um, to reporting finances as there are football clubs, so it's um, it's challenging to find a uh, find a set of easily translatable benchmarks uh, across across clubs. Yeah. Um, well, one of the problems, I guess, for for those of us looking from the outside, is that company law now does not require a great deal of disclosure for many yeah. of these clubs. So, um, the smaller clubs, there isn't really enough information out in the public domain, and and I'm not necessarily comfortable that that's a good thing i i think there's an argument for clubs who want to participate in a certain league structure um to have to um abide by that league's rules yeah. and i would advocate those leagues um perhaps requiring greater um disclosure obligations and governance obligations than a, an equivalent company because of the 
range of stakeholders who have an active interest in the mm-hmm. clubs. Mm-hmm. I say agree. When you when a club doesn't have to publish its profit, profit and loss accounts and its accounts, then you really are scrabbling around for any information about its health. Well, many of them don't have to have AGMs either. Yeah. I think that yeah. gives them the opportunity. It, it means they don't. The shareholders, the small shareholders, don't have an opportunity to challenge the executives, and I think that's wrong. Yeah. So we're not going to be talking about clubs as big as West Ham, unfortunately, today. My, my <laughs> we'll have a West Ham podcast one day for you. Do you reckon? Yeah. Maybe we'll get the smallest. You're for it. Well, I am, but uh, I'm trying to work out how we can legitimately we'll find justify a, that. Find a, find a Scottish perspective on West Ham and then that'll, that'll work. Okay, good, good. Um, well, if we could find an exiled West Ham supporter who lives in Scotland, do you know any? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, so, we're, but we are going to be talking about uh, finances from the from a community sports club's perspective. And when we say community sports clubs, we mean clubs that are either owned by their community um, or even just grassroots um, sports clubs. Um, so let's get stuck into the kind of fundamentals and basics of, of finance and what a club would need to know about. Um, and I think often, uh, I'd be interested for your views on this, Nick, uh, Often it seems like the treasure is lumped with everything to do with finance, but there's an importance for everyone having an understanding of finance, isn't there? Well, I think the role of the treasurer or finance manager, whatever you choose to call him, is absolutely essential in any business, but I think particularly in fast-moving businesses such as sport. Um, But too many um, guys who who perform that role maybe um, get, get too preoccupied with recording information and don't necessarily contribute to the decision making process and I, I think you can't do one without the other the, the, the finance guy has to be central to the decision making process in the business um, part of the management team so for example in football um, major decisions are being made in terms of player recruitment that type of thing it has to be done within a, a pre-agreed budgetary framework which has been um, developed with uh, an active contribution from the treasurer or finance manager. Uh, and if it hasn't been, I think it's there's a danger that things are going to go wrong. Um, so the guy can't be um, just recording accounting transactions in isolation. He has to have a, a central role in, in taking the business forward. Mm. And um, so with that, what, where would you start if you were a, a grassroots club in, in Scotland and you were looking to uh, really get your head around finance for the upcoming season? What would you, where would you start in terms of a, a budget and, and putting that together? Well, well, there's a number of aspects to budgeting, um, both short term and long term. But I, I think what's essential is that you have a, a, a trading forecast, your profit or loss income or expenditure. Um, and that has to be linked with your cash flow forecast because there may be non-trading cash transactions which might be investment in um, equipment or facilities, uh, what we call capital expenditure. Um, It may be uh, repayment of loans, existing loan commitments. Um, Within football clubs, it may be transfer fees receivable or payable. So the, the, the trading profit or loss only tells part of the picture and unless one's looking at the overall picture um, and taking account of the, the non-trading cash transactions there's a danger that the business might be uh, not seeing the full picture. So um, y- you have two aspects of um, 
the, the budgeting, as I said, short-term and long-term. Your short-term has to be looking at um, both trading and cash flow. Um, long-term, it could be uh, three, five years. Um, I suppose it depends on, on where the business is heading. There may be consideration of um, funding um, investment in facilities, assessing whether um, that can be funded from the club's own resources or whether it would need to raise loan finance, that sort of thing. But um, if you are looking at um, trying to raise external finance, it's essential that you have very sound budgeting processes that give the funder confidence that you know where the business is heading and, and uh, that the investment can be justified. Um, moving back to short term, uh, this say for a football club would be on a season by season basis uh, and I think really you've got to have a monthly view of your budget um, and, and you know it's pretty straightforward for a football club because you've got your, your matches phased through the, the 10 months of the season and it's fairly easy to, to plot the transactions across a, a 12 month period. Um, the particular challenge I think for football club budgeting is that whereas you have to really um, make a decision about your contractual costs, mainly your players, in the pre-season. Um, there's a degree of uncertainty about revenue until well into the season. Now, the, the key revenue sources will be um, commercial and gate money. You may know your main sponsor, you may know your season ticket money, but you're not going to know a lot of the ancillary sources of income and the sort of match-by-match -match gate money until the season develops. So you've had to make some decisions about um, fixed costs that can't then be avoided if you've misjudged your um, assessment of your revenue. So it's an important exercise, it's got to be done with great care and the various decision makers have to be challenged in the first place as to whether they're um, expectations of commercial income for example can be justified and it has to be a, a well thought through process I think by um, the whole executive of the club not just the treasurer for example. Mm. So yeah I, I mean I'm wondering if, you, if there's best practices on how you balance the the aspirational tendency of, of uh, football club owners to say well we want to win the league so we need to put a team in place that can do that with the uh, with the responsibility, uh, the, the more responsible um, perspective of saying, well, here's what we can afford in the worst case scenario. At what point in between does it sit? And is there, are there some best practices about how people balance that, either by having some, some core expenditure and then some levers they can pull mm -hmm. mid-season, either to increase expenditure or reduce it? Uh, is there, is there a, a, a kind of silver bullet to that? Well, I think it's probably an individual um, situation because it probably depends on the extent to which the club owner is willing to <laughs> to fund his aspirations. <laughs> if, if, if his view is that the club has to be, to a great extent, self-financing, then clearly there has to be a pushback if the um, aspirations are, are unreasonable. But often it's not just the owner. It, it may be executives within clubs are... Um, a little bit too inclined to take risks yeah. and it's there where I think uh, a treasurer or a finance manager has to be a strong personality who has to be prepared to challenge these people and rather than just accept um, unrealistic expectations about commercial income to push back and say look 
we can only afford a player budget of X. If we um, manage to secure additional revenue from uh, commercial sources, from gates, from, from a cut run, from, uh, I don't know, a live TV appearance, something like that, then we can fund further investment. But we've got to have a baseline that we don't budge from. Um, if if uh, that means we have to augment the squad with loan signings or we have a, a higher mix of performance-related pay, I think these are all the sort of prudent things one tries to do to, to mitigate the risk. Uh, and I guess the other thing is to be very cagey about um, entering into long-term contracts because um, certainly football clubs can be exposed to, to relegation. And you don't want a situation where you've recruited a squad of 18 or 20 players, some of whom are on pretty decent wages, the club gets relegated and you then have a number of contracts that aren't affordable and you can't offload these yeah. players. So so the right precautions there, I think, would be um, to, well, firstly, to have it as performance-related. So, so, you know, a significant element of their pay might be based on appearance, on wins, on league position. But also then, if a club got relegated, you might say, well, there's going to be a, a 20 30% mm. Um, contractual pay cut or at the player's behest he can exercise an option to to break the contract in in the summer and, and move on and then everyone's happy the player can move to a club that will pay him what he thinks he's worth and the, the club makes the savings because they've dropped a league so there's all sorts of ways you can mitigate the risk by structuring the contracts carefully so this is this is uh, great and this is for a semi-professional or professional club, that sounds like ideal kind of setup. What about if you were a, really a kind of a grassroots um, amateur, you know, community club? That um, it would it be easier to budget for a season? Presumably, there's less variables in that sense. I guess there's less downside. I mean, I, I suppose they're getting the bulk of their income from subscriptions, from member subs, uh, maybe augmented by uh, um, fundraising events, that sort of thing. So I, I would think that there is there is less risk. Uh, because uh, I think the situation with pro football clubs is fairly unique where so much of your cost is fixed and cannot be uh, negotiated away. So um, grassroots clubs will have a cost base, but they can probably manage it better and they can probably have greater certainty 12 months ahead of of a realistic income stream. So um, it may well be front-loaded in the sense that subs might be paid in advance, but they should be able to predict it with some certainty. And if they can be confident that the costs over a 12-month period are no more than the, um, the projected income, then, then they're in good shape. Um, they do have to be aware of, as I say, non-trading transactions. So if they are looking to fund facilities or uh, investment in facilities or repay loans, things like that, those have to be factored in, but as long as they do the exercise professionally, then they should be in good shape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they've produced a budget for the season if they've done a short-term budget. Um, and how would they then go about measuring where they are as a kind of indicator of performance against that? What are the kind of main uh, documents that they would need to assess their performance? Well, well that's essential to, to keep monitoring it. And uh, one would look to produce... I would recommend monthly accounts, unless you're a very, very small business where you might get away with quarterly, but um, certainly where a, a business, where, where income streams are prone to change, no matter what your efforts at, at, at estimating 
at the outset have been, I think it's essential that you um, probably produce monthly accounts. And then if the budget that you produced at the start of the financial year was analysed on a monthly basis, you can monitor actual performance against um, budgeted performance every month. And sometimes you may find that the variance is simply because something has slipped by a month. It's it's a, a timing difference. You, you assess that you get the money in August and it comes in in September. Those differences don't matter. But if the monthly monitoring reveals a pattern where income is tailing off relative to expectation, then clearly corrective action is needed. If you have um, fully committed all of your income to a level of contractual costs that um, it's very hard to foresee savings, then you know you are heading for an uncomfortable situation. And where, as I mentioned earlier, football clubs have got a lot of their money up front, they may seem to be in a good cash position uh, in the autumn without anticipating that come February, March, April, there really is very little cash coming in and um, they may be at risk of, of, of going into overdraft. Um, I know some clubs, the, 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 the easy way of mitigating that is start selling season tickets for next season in February. <laughs> and that, that can, that, that's a short-term solution, but it becomes a bit of a vicious circle where effectively you've spent half of next season's money this season and uh, it can become a vicious circle. So it's, it's not to be recommended. But where, where your um, cash flows are very seasonal, I think you need to be especially aware that when um, there is an adverse variance emerging, you've got to be confident you can get through to the end of the financial year. Um, mm. If not, then you have to be looking at other solutions, which might be you know, radical cost cutting, um, going back to members, if that's a viable proposition to do some fundraising or, or um, asking for voluntary donations to try and tide the club through. But you can't do that every year. It mm-hmm. tends to suggest that the executives aren't in control of the, the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would seem quite unsustainable, really, wouldn't it? Um, what would be the best kind of tool to, to, to measure that then? Uh, you know, obviously, we're saying we set a budget for the season. Um, month by month, we're going to look at it uh, on that basis. And would it just be as simple as a cash flow? it's a wee bit of both so you're monitoring your trading performance against the budget so if your commercial income your gate income for smaller clubs the subs is in line with expectations then it tells you your things are going well and, and there's no cause for concern if it's disclosing a pattern where there's an adverse um variance every month it is telling you we really need to take corrective action um, I mean, it may be that you, you are hoping to fund uh, uh, investment in new facilities. Maybe you have to defer that expenditure, that sort of thing. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be individual to each club, really. But um, the important thing is to know where you're heading at all times. And uh, it will be um, looking at your trading performance and then any other non-trading commitments that you have. Mm-hmm. And... Um just to tell me about this this phrase that you'll hear often when you're talking about financial terms, cash is king. Very much so, yeah. I mean, there's often massive timing differences, uh, particularly in football, between um, your income and your outgoings. And you can look hugely profitable in the early months of the season. And as I say, um, but, but by February, March, April, there's no cash coming in and you can be in serious difficulty. So you have to be aware of 
what your end of financial year cash balance is going to be at all times. And if you fail to keep an eye on that, then, then you are heading for trouble. Um, some businesses are run purely on a cash basis, but many are run on, on a credit basis where you um, sell to people on credit and you pay for supplies on credit, but you have to be um, dedicated, ruthless even at collecting that cash and you have to be able to pay suppliers in a reasonable time scale to start just deferring payment to um, to local suppliers, to major creditors like HMRC. Um, it's, it's a slippery slope, unfortunately. And uh, if you can't be funding your month-to-month um, -month outgoings on a regular basis, then the business is heading for trouble. So there's two sort of fatal mistakes you can make is defer deferring expenditure that's, that has to happen mm. and also bringing income forward, as you said, you know, mm. given that example of selling next season's tickets this season. So if you do both, if you do either of those things, it's, um, it's, it's, it's storing up problems for later, but if you do both, you're, you're almost inevitably oh, going to get into sticky, it's, it's sticky a slippery, It's a slippery slope then, yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> it's very difficult to claw that back without seriously affecting the performance, performance on the pitch, I guess. Mm. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, clubs that we've worked with um, where I suppose that's come to, to life. So and I, I imagine a lot of clubs in the same situation will go for a similar thing. So we have uh, a very good level of income during the summer months. Actually, the level of income stays pretty similar throughout the year. What changes, though, is our expenditure on facility hire. So during the summer months, we're able to use a, a grass pitch, which doesn't cost us anything because we have a lease on it. Um, but during the winter months, we have to go and pay for 3G facilities. And so our um, cash flow in the summer, looks absolutely terrific because yeah. you've got all this, in, this this income coming in and you're hardly spending anything but during the winter months that suddenly you know that those reserves go steadily yeah. down because your yeah. expenditure so, so, make so don't celebrate having a great quarter no absolutely season. <laughs> very much so and I think that's that's certainly um, the danger of that and I suppose the other thing that we do to try of make sure that we um some of the clubs I've worked with, uh, we have a kind of uh, red, amber and green scenario based on our, our membership subs. That's our main source of income. So we have a look and see if we reach a certain points, we know we're going to be in trouble. If we get to amber or red, we need to do something to address mm. that, that membership income and, and get that back up to a, to a green mm. position um, to make sure that we're going to be sustainable for the year. Yeah. Um, so what else would um, a club need to look at on a kind of a basis? What are the other kind of uh, documents that they would look at to... Um, I'm thinking maybe about income and expenditure statements and, and balance sheets, and I suppose perhaps you could elaborate on the difference between them and the importance of each. Well, yeah, the income and expenditure statement or profit and loss account um, are interchangeable. The terminology is you tend to use income and expenditure for, for non-profit making entities, but um, the, the, the issues are the same really. Uh, ideally, you want to have more income than you have expenditure, and if, <laughs> if, you're not, you've got a if you don't, it's a bad thing. Um, the balance sheet is just really looking at the um, the state of the company's finances at, at any point in time. It's a snapshot of the aggregate value of their assets and the aggregate value of their liabilities. Again, ideally, um, your assets are worth more than your liabilities or else you are heading for trouble. A lot of businesses get away with having um, uh, net liabilities and... Up to a point you can get away with it for a while, but again, it, it's indicative that you are heading for problems. And uh, this is because, as I said earlier, a lot of football clubs especially get a lot of income in an advance and can defer paying creditors and suppliers. 
but it is an indication that you are likely to be heading for difficulty if your liabilities are greater than your assets. So um, a, a good committee or board would always be looking at the balance sheet and assessing whether um, that there is a comfortable surplus of assets. Again, you might have a deficit um, because you have some long-term liabilities. Now, if, if those are phased over a number of years, be it loan repayments or um, sometimes a grant is deferred over a period of years, then you can make a decision to say, well, that's acceptable because um, we know that we're not going to have to repay that um, all this year. It's going to be phased over five years. But it's still something that the, the committee or the board need to be aware of and they need to be making a conscious decision that our, um, our balance sheet is in good shape or it needs some further investment or correction. And uh, as this is for, for beginners, uh, why is it called a balance sheet? Well, because it has to balance uh, and it will always balance because uh, on the one side you'll have assets, on the other side you'll have liabilities and a difference between the two is either the equity that was invested by the um, original owners, the shareholders, the members, um, and, and the absolute balance then will be your accumulated surpluses or deficits. So if you have an excess of liabilities over assets, it probably means that you've been racking up losses for a number of years. If you have a, an excess of assets over liabilities, it's because you've recorded surpluses for a number of years. and. Uh, Obviously, that's the preferable position. Mm. And surpluses don't always mean cash in the bank. Um, so you can have a positive um, balance between, um, between your surpluses and your, your losses, but actually be cash poor. So it's cash, um, you know, the availability of cash can also not sometimes. Oh, be yeah. Uh, and, you know, one of your assets, your major asset might be facilities, but you yeah. can't turn that into cash without selling it. And you can only do that once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you did mention earlier types of expenditure and capital expenditure versus revenue expenditure, but I suppose perhaps could you just explain a little bit about the difference between the two? And Well, revenue expenditure is what would feature in your, your trading profit and loss account, or we said your income and expenditure account, and that would be annual running costs. It might be wages and salaries. It might be um, ongoing costs of, I don't know, maintenance, of um, office administration costs, IT, that sort of thing. Capital expenditure tends to be one-off expenditure on facilities. So for a football club, it might be um, investment in the stadium or the um, training ground. For, for a, a grassroots club, it might be just investment in their facilities in um, I don't know, establishing a new gym, establishing um, a, a, a synthetic surface something like that um, and it tends to be one-off in nature and then you're obviously hoping to exploit the benefit of that over a period of years um, you might then decide you're going to write off the cost of that over 10 20 years depends on the life expectancy of it but you might have funded it from surpluses you've made in the past you might have taken out a loan to um, fund it but then you have to be looking at the um, potential return from that facility. If you've created a new, shall we say, a 3G pitch that you can hire out, what's the um, estimated incremental revenue from that? And can you um, meet the loan repayments from the incremental revenue? So then you're back into forecasting, I guess, to, to make sure that it's viable. But you're not writing off the cost of that um, 
investment in one hit. You're writing it off over a period of years, ideally matching it with the, um, the in- incremental revenue you've generated from it. Mm-hmm. What would be your key questions if somebody was to walk up to a football club uh, with seemingly deep pockets and a willingness to share their wealth with the football club and invest in the football club? How would you go about assessing whether that investor is um, is going to be benevolent, is going to be a good thing for the football club, or going to going to store up problems from later? You talked right at the start about some of the investors at West Ham back in your in your in your time there that turned out not to be mm. um, a, a great result for the club. Is there an easy way to to really look into the white of a an investor's eyes and see whether they're a white knight or a or or the prince of darkness? <laughs> I'm not sure whether there is, unfortunately. I think nowadays that's the best thing is to Google them and find out how many, uh, what sort of checkered history they have. Um, for whatever reason, football seems to attract a huge number of rogues and chancers. And um, uh, sadly, it's true of any business that you can't impose any conditions on the owner. You can't say, um, we will allow you to control this entity as long as you promise to do this, to invest money every year, not to spend more than this much money, and so on and so forth. Um, it's it's very hard indeed. I think um, it's true to say that the various governing bodies, north and south of the border, have really failed to get to grips with um, the, the rules as regards changes of ownership. And in my view, a lot more work needs to be done to assess whether these individuals are fit and proper. Um, And we need to have a great deal more comfort about the source and adequacy of funds they're proposing to inject in businesses. So um, there can still be no 100% guarantee, but at least uh, we could probably have greater comfort if you're reducing it down to one club and, and um, a group of supporters actually was allowed to uh, interview the prospective owner, I would actually want to have some uh, indication as to whether he, he intended to run it sustainably. If he really is just going to pump money into it on a whim, I, I don't think that's a good way to run a business like a football club. And I, I've come across many examples where... Um, it induces um, a sense of uh, perhaps almost laziness um, among the staff at the club where, where they no longer act commercially. It's far easier to rely on the deep pockets of the owner rather than going out to find uh, additional um, commercial partners or to control your expenditure. And uh, I always remember um, a colleague I knew uh, who was at Blackburn Rovers in the days when Jack Walker was the chairman and said that the the whole culture of the club was if if there was a slight problem they'd say buy me a new left back rather than actually make the yeah. the two or three left backs on the books better left backs yeah. it was easy to <laughs> to get another one rather than uh, coach the one we had to to be a better footballer and that is the culture it creates if if the owner is laissez faire and is seen as being someone who fund anything then I think that the management over time just start being lazy and and you end up with a a bad business. And even if the owner is willing to subsidise the club to some extent, you need to retain that culture of commerciality and making every penny count or else the business won't succeed. Okay. Um, I think that's the kind of the main basics covered, wouldn't you say? Mm. I was just wondering if there's any other kind of technical terms or terminology that somebody that was 
involved in running a sports club at a very basic level would need to know or what kind of top tips you might have for somebody? I think it's hard to, to um, provide any sort of really general tips because each business is, is separate. All I would suppose I would say is if people want further advice then they should come to support us well, direct Scotland that... who are a fount of knowledge and, and always happy to help. <laughs> that leads me very nicely into my, my uh, last bit, which it's a good is... script uh, you've got this week, Andrew. That was seamless. Um, it, which is that so you mentioned uh, doing some work for Panic on Icos and some work down in England, but you also are a consultant with us up here in, in Scotland and you have done some work for us in the past. Um, and I just wondered what other services, or perhaps you could tell uh, some of the listeners what other services that they could benefit from us, uh, from your skill set. Well, you know, we're always glad to try and guide people who, who may not be um, as knowledgeable about finance matters generally or indeed know where to look. You know, there's not as much as I would wish for uh, in the public domain for clubs, but there is a certain amount. And if you know where to look, we can um, do some, some very easy research into the funding of clubs, um, their, their most recently published accounts, um, if they've granted security over um, the club's assets, that sort of thing. So, so there is always a certain amount of, of information one can pull together. We also, because we've done a fair bit of work here and there, we have um, access to benchmarking in information, which is always interesting. Some clubs do produce more detailed information than others, and, and I've built up a, a, a database of information about clubs, uh, even um, below uh, premiership level, uh, on their wage costs, their income, uh, and it's interesting to compare clubs. So if someone's thinking, why is my club not doing this? You can say, well, they're, you know, they're one of the bigger spenders in the league. So yeah, they're doing everything they should be doing. It's, um, you know, we can we can provide a little bit of guidance to to um, manage uh, supporter groups' expectations. Mm. Um, that there will be examples, sadly, where owners perhaps aren't acting in the best interests of um, stakeholders of clubs. And again, we can give some advice there. But whether that can go beyond um, a form of just educating and informing and actually uh, going on to um, organising campaigns is, is difficult to say on a general basis. I think it's, it, that, that would have to be on a club-by-club basis. And you know supporters need to be organized and and willing to to mobilize to to see if they can campaign when they do want change yeah one of the first interviews we had uh one of our first guests on the podcast was david nickel from smizer who um gave a very nice plug for your services so perhaps we could use that as a case study and just explain the kind of support that you offered um st marin supporters trust back when they were looking to buy the club well, well, the beauty of that was it was consensual. The um, the owners, the then owners of St Mirren were willing to entertain a change of ownership. And so they made very full disclosure of uh, the club's financial records over the preceding few seasons. So uh, I think the, the overriding um, objective for supporter-owned clubs has to be that they should be fundamentally sustainable they cannot um, have a situation where they are going back to their owners every year saying, give us more money because we've incurred losses because um, supporter groups can, I think, um, invest modest amounts on a regular basis. They can't find windfall amounts to, um, to, to underwrite 
unanticipated losses, that sort of thing. So the important message was to try and um, pull out from this information that we were given by the club, whether the club was able to operate sustainably at or around the level that they're currently performing at. And to be fair, although I, I know the outgoing owners had faced criticism, I think they were quite a well-run club and to a greater or lesser extent they had been running sustainably. They were lucky to have a nice facility out in Paisley and um, they, they generated decent amounts of, of commercial income and it seemed like a prudently run club where they they sought to, to manage their costs in line with their expenditure. So by getting fairly full access to this accounting information, I was able to produce a report for Smyzer that gave the supporter group reassurance that if they did go ahead with a fundraising exercise, they could be investing in something that was sustainable and where they could have a positive role in the future. And I think that's well in hand now. It's what's probably two years um, yeah, yeah. through the process uh, of fundraising, whereby they'll ultimately gain complete control. They've obviously had a tremendous um, result recently of gaining promotion back to the Premiership. And although it is best part of two years since I looked at them, my recollection is that the the level of income they generate um, from their supporter base and, and um, ancillary commercial activities. That's a club that ought to be able to operate at Premiership level quite comfortably. Be while being sus- while being sustainable. <laughs> reassuring you. <laughs> well, thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, much appreciate your time and skills. And if people do want to get in touch with you, they can reach us through uh, clubdevelopment.scott, our website, or on Twitter, clubdevscott, uh, which is not particularly catchy, but never, never mind. Uh, <laughs> it's shorter than Club, club Development Scotland. Well, that's true. Very much so. Club Dev Scott. Uh, and if you search for Club Development Scotland, I'm sure you'll be able to find us. But um, Nick, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Nick. My pleasure. So thanks to Nick for coming on to the podcast, giving up his time so generously and, uh, and taking us through that. Um, I've always thought that football finances must be an impenetrable minefield, but Nick got a way of, of really being able to focus on um, the essential parts of that in, in a language that's as simple as it can be with finances. There's always going to be terminology, there's always going to be a bit of jargon there, um, but there's some simple concepts there that I hope people will be able to take away and uh, absorb and introduce to their club at whatever level they're, they're, they're playing. Absolutely, and uh, he finished nicely there with uh, his uh, case study of or our case study of uh, St Mirren and the work yeah. we did through through club development a couple of years ago, um, and of course they had some good news this week. Yeah, congratulations to everyone at St Mirren for winning the championship. Uh, I think the last few years in the championship in Scotland have been tough for any team to 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 win because there's always been some fairly big players in there, um, and St Mirren have. Uh, have won the won the championship with I think three or maybe even four games to spare, which is a, a terrific achievement. So, uh, a, a huge congratulations to everyone in St Mirren who's behind behind that success. Yeah, um, and it comes on the back of a good good couple of weeks really, or a good week anyway, certainly for supporter owned uh, clubs in Scotland with uh, Motherwell reaching their second cup final of the season. Yeah, which is tremendous, really. Um, you know, getting into the cup final, I mean, they've got a big job to do when in, in in the final, but just being in two fi- cup finals in one season. Is, is amazing um, for a supporter-owned club, particularly, um, given the the pressure, the additional pressures that, that supporters-owned clubs are, are under financially, as, as Nick outlined there. Mm. Also, congratulations to Hearts, finishing yes. in the top six of the Premier. Um, they're not supporter-owned yet, but they're on a very strong path towards it. And 
as, as you'll have heard in our earlier episode with Foundation of Hearts, um, a tremendous amount of work going on uh, by the supporters there. So they've had a great season as well, uh, finishing in the top six. I'm sure they would like to have finished higher, um, as every club that doesn't win them win their division does. But I think that's a tremendous achievement for Hearts. Uh, another another solid season for them. Yeah, and we since we're mentioning them all, we should also mention Sterling Albion and Clyde that I think are both in the the playoff uh, contention down in League Two as well. So yeah, I'm, a, I'm particularly impressed with with Clyde there because it doesn't seem all that long ago that they were scuffing around at the bottom. Last year. They, they, um, even this, even even this season earlier in the season sure. they yeah. they were they were in they were in Cowden Beath sites yeah. being a fifer. I always look out for the five clubs results and Cowden Beath have been struggling all season, um, and it doesn't seem all that long ago that that, that Clyde looked like they were in their sights, but mm. Clyde have just pulled away with some some terrific form. Yeah. Um, so yeah, well done to both of the both of the League Two supporters. Yeah. Uh, Good advert for the movement. Good advert for the movement. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us, and we will uh, be back next week. Yeah, enjoy your week, enjoy your football, and we'll speak to you soon. Behind the Goals is a Supporters Direct Scotland podcast. You can get in touch with the show by emailing behindthegoals at hotmail.com or you can also tweet the show at SupDirectScott. That's S-U-P-P Direct Scott. Scott.